0: Howdy guys. Welcome uh, to my talk. (laughs) Hey, thanks for the positive feedback um, for this series and people have particularly appreciated all the different uh, slides of places and times and buildings and history and maps and terrain. And we're going to get 15 or so of those today, which is exciting from Archaeology Illustrated, which again is archaeological research and the best research available, reconstructing what it was like, particularly looking at Jerusalem today. I was there when I was 15, staying on the Mount of Olives at the Intercontinental Hotel and looking out over the the Temple Mount. Very exciting. It's burned into my memory, I must say. Today we come to the end of this discipleship section in chapters 9 and 10 that we've been looking at for several weeks. We're going to look at the healing of blind Bartimaeus to kind of wrap up chapters 9 and 10. And then I couldn't help myself, I wanted to get to Jerusalem because the whole story is driving towards Jerusalem. So we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem 11, 1 to eleven. First, Jesus heals a blind man, and this is the last healing in Mark's gospel because the story is now going to shift to Jesus' final week in Jerusalem where he dies and is arrested and all those things. So this is the final miracle, and verse 46, Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there are some fascinating elements in this miracle. Jesus is leaving Jericho en route to Jerusalem. And we saw this slide, Jericho down the bottom. Jerusalem, just up the top. It's comparable to Penrith Katoomba, that sort of distance and height difference. And Jesus is just leaving Jericho and there's a large crowd, partly because it's Jesus and he's attracted all these people, but partly because it's Passover time. And this is the pilgrim route from Galilee up to Jerusalem for Passover. So there would have been tens and tens of thousands of people as coming as pilgrims uh, to walk up to Jerusalem And not only from Galilee, but from all over the Mediterranean world to celebrate Passover. And so we have a lot of crowds here and this blind beggar by the side of the road. And we've already seen in Mark's Gospel, there's this theme of blindness and sight. Uh, Remember the two-stage healing of the blind man in chapter 8. And this whole discipleship section begins with the healing of a blind man, ends with the healing of a blind man. So they're the bookends of this whole section. And in that first healing of a blind man in chapter 8, it was a two-stage healing. At first, he couldn't see clearly. Then Jesus again healed him, and he could see clearly. And that was a metaphor for what's going on spiritually for, for the disciples. They see Jesus partially, but they don't yet see him clearly. And the irony is here that even though blind Bartimaeus is blind, he sees Jesus clearly. And he's calling on Jesus as the son of David, have mercy on me. He understands Jesus in a way that the disciples still don't. And it's also interesting we get his name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. It's interesting because we're not usually given the names of people that Jesus heals. We just, we're just given their condition. Here we're given Bartimaeus' name. Why? I think it's because Bartimaeus becomes a disciple of Jesus So he's possibly known to the people that Mark is writing to or at least his name was available um, for people to find out about him. And what's so interesting also is something that really stands out and I I hope when you're reading through Mark for the first time in your life you went, this is new. He calls Jesus son of David. He calls Jesus son of David. Have mercy on me. The first time in Mark's Gospel. And from now on, this will be a really key theme in Mark. Jesus, the son of David, coming to Jerusalem, the city of David. So exciting. And of course, son of David is a title for the Messiah. He's not simply saying Jesus is of the Davidic line. No, he's saying... Jesus is the heir of David. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was to come. Great David's greater son. And of course, he's calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, which fits all the prophecies of the Messiah, where when he comes, he will have healing in his wings. He'll be accompanied by healing. And he will give sight to the blind. And there's an irony here, Um, we have this man calling out son of David, but the crowd is trying to hush him up, Uh, and the irony is that what Bartimaeus is saying is the absolute truth, but they're trying to keep him quiet, Um, and it's because they view him as too low in the status hierarchy to be bothering the Messiah, or to be bothering Jesus, and uh, it's like the disciples keeping the children away. They're trying to shut this blind beggar up. Surely he's too low of a status for the Messiah's attention. Of course, but of course, that's so wrong. And of course, uh, Bartimaeus' persistence wins out. He is not silent. He cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and calls him. The disciples bring him. He springs up. It's really amazing, his joy at being called by Jesus. He flies off his coat and comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And remember, James and John asking this, uh, Jesus asked James and John this same question in the section before this. They came to Jesus and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want you to honour us. And Bartimaeus is calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus, in the midst of calling out for mercy, says, I want to see. So it's hard not to see the irony here that he's not asking to be honoured like James and John, the disciples. He's asking, have mercy on me, I want to see. And again, Mark has this theme of sight and belief. I want to see is the cry we all ought to be crying out to Jesus. I want to see. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to understand. I want to believe. And Jesus responds, go. Your faith has healed you. We've seen all through Mark, Jesus requires and responds to a robust kind of muscular response of faith. And here this man's persistence is his muscular response to Jesus. Even though the crowds are telling him to be quiet, he won't be quiet. He's calling out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. His persistence shows the sincerity and reality of his faith. And so Jesus tells him, go, your faith has healed you. And notice what he does. Um, Now he has the the option to do whatever he likes but he follows Jesus on the road. He follows Jesus literally on the way. Even though Bartimaeus can now do whatever he wants, he's not going to do that. He's going to follow Jesus now. And he comes in with the, the crowd and follows him to Jerusalem. And I think this, is, this whole thing is a, a, a picture of true discipleship coming at the end of this whole section on discipleship. Here's what it's all about. Calling out, have mercy. Acknowledging Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Calling out for mercy. The joy when Jesus responds to us. Coming to him, throwing off anything that might hinder us and following him. Uh, That is a great model of what it is to be Jesus' discipleship. Okay, now we come to the climax of the story. Chapter 11, 1 to 11. Jesus enters Jerusalem. First, let me remind you um, of the significance of the temple in the Jewish world. The temple is where God and humans come together. It was in Jerusalem. It was built by King Solomon a thousand years before this, but destroyed by the Babylonians and now rebuilt by Herod the Great. So here's some pictures. This is the Temple Mount, the temple area, Jerusalem. We're looking back towards Jericho, which is down here, Um, the Dead Sea in here. Sorry, yeah, and this is a closer view from the air. Yeah from the south, the, uh, temp- the city of David, the temple at the top, the Roman section up here, yeah, the Pool of Shalom down the bottom. And then this is a better picture. Gives you, that gives you a, a sense of the scale of the temple. And, you know, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, says that during Passover week, on one particular occasion, t- 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in one week. 255,000 lambs, which would represent 255,000 families in and around Jerusalem for Passover. The scale, the numbers of animals that would have been in around that uh, temple sanctuary area. This is the sanctuary itself up here. Uh, yes. Yes. Court of women, court of men, court of Gentiles on either side. It's just absolutely massive. Um, and God had left the temple. Remember Ezekiel chapter 10, the vision of God leaving the temple. The glory of God left the temple back in Israel's history because of their sin, idolatry, their faithlessness. And the temple was destroyed. And they were hoping and praying that this is hundreds of years later, they're hoping and praying that God will come back in his glory to his temple, as promised in Malachi, Isaiah and Zechariah, that God would fill his house again with his glory. And they knew that God wasn't part of it anymore, right? They knew that. And maybe it would take a king who would come, a real king who would rebuild it properly so that it would be fit for God to come again. Maybe it would take a pure priesthood to purify the people of Israel so that they would be appropriate for God to come back. And so all these expectations were swirling around in the period before Jesus. And the extraordinary thing is in the last 50 years, there's been an explosion of our knowledge of, of what people thought in the period before Jesus came in Judaism especially since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at the end of the 1940s and through the 1950s, they discovered more and more scrolls by the Dead Sea there in the Qumran community. And we've realised more than ever how important the temple was in the Jewish world and why what Jesus is about to do and say was so absolutely explosive. For them, it was all about the temple. Um, And Herod, King Herod the Great, has just built, over 45 years it took them, just built this big thing. They're hoping God will come back and fill his temple again. But Jesus says some very, very different kinds of things (laughs) that explode their minds. Anyway, chapters 11 to 15 are this clash between Jesus and the temple authorities. Um, And, of course, they will arrest and execute him, saying he said he would destroy the temple. And even on the cross as he's dying, they're mocking him, you who said you'd destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Come down from the cross and then we will believe you. Uh, So this is the story, Jesus coming to the temple and clashing with the temple leadership. So let's look at chapter 11, 1 to 11, the triumphal entry. Verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. The journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is gruelling. It's 40 k's by road. Jer- Jericho, 250 metres below sea level, the lowest place in the world. And Jerusalem, 750 metres above sea level. So you had to climb 1,000 metres To Mount, up there to uh, Mount of Olives, had to climb a thousand metres through barren, rocky desert, not a shrub in sight, and then you would come over the crest of the Mount of Olives and it was stunning. The climate changed within, changes within uh, 200 metres, and uh, there's been just desert, but then suddenly there's green foliage. And you then come over the rise there, and Bethphage and Bethany are villages just near the summit of the Mount of Olives. And you come up on the Mount of Olives, and there before you is Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And it is absolutely stunning. Um, and another one there. I'll be, yeah, Kidron Valley. Yeah, and you'd be singing psalms as you came to the city. A moving experience. Jesus sent two of his disciples, verse 2, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt. Outside in the street, tied to a doorway, and they, as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. There are some interesting things here. Notice that Jesus deliberately obtains a colt of a donkey to ride on as he enters Jerusalem. It's his choice. There's a sense of careful preparation. Um, We're going to see a very similar thing in chapter 14 as Jesus prepares for the Last Supper. And I'll talk about that when we get to chapter 14, but these two two things go together. The preparation for the the cult and the preparation for the Passover meal Uh, have very similar language and details. And here Mark gives us a lot of detail about Jesus organising to get this cult of a donkey. Mark typically moves very quickly. We've seen this is Mark's style. It's all rapid fire. Yet when he gets to chapter 11, he slows down dramatically. And there's this rhetorical effect of all this detail, indicating that this is what the gospel has all been heading towards. And Jesus has been on the move around Galilee and around Gentile lands. He's always been on the move. He hasn't settled anywhere. And even John the Baptist was there preparing the way of the Lord. And so there's been this journey uh, that Jesus has been on, and it's all been heading for Jerusalem. (laughs) And now here he is. This is the great climax. And we see how deliberate Jesus is in how he wants to enter Jerusalem. Uh, He chooses to enter riding this beast, this young colt of a donkey, this male, young donkey, this foal of a donkey. He he wants to ride that in to the city. Now, how does Jesus know about this donkey? Um, He gives very specific instructions. Go, as soon as you enter in, you'll, you'll see this donkey tied. No one has ever ridden it. It's a cult. Untie it, bring it to me. If someone asks you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> and the disciples do it and it plays out exactly as Jesus has, has said. And some believe that Jesus has prophetic uh, knowledge of this donkey that was there. Um, without dismissing Jesus' prophetic ability, I think also that it's possible that he pre-planned this that Jesus has already set in motion a process that the disciples aren't privy to uh, and has organised and, res- and reserved this beast. Either way, there's a sense of deliberateness. So the question is, why? Why does he want to enter in riding on a colt of a donkey? There are a few reasons. One is that it's how Davidic kings came in. Like this is how Solomon entered in, riding on this beast representing peace rather than on a, a war horse uh, coming in, in conquest. So this represents Davidic kingship coming in peace. And Mark doesn't quote it, but Matthew and John do. Jesus is acting out Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah 9.9 9 says rejoice greatly daughter of Zion, shout daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it goes on, he will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, the prophecy of Zechariah. And it's as though Jesus, with his head and his heart full of the Old Testament scriptures and meditating on them and letting them inform him as to his calling, he acts out this remarkable scene. And the idea of the cult of a donkey is a small male donkey. So Jesus sits on this cult He would have been kind of at eye level with the other pilgrims, right? That's the point. And, you know, struggling to keep his feet from dragging on the ground. So he's coming, in a sense, in victory, but in a sense he's coming in a lowly form. He's coming in peace. He's coming in humility. He's coming in gentleness. And the other gospels say the cult's mother... Walked alongside. There were two colts, the mother, and uh, sorry, two donkeys, the mother and this colt that Jesus is riding on. And the fact that the colt has never been ridden has a sacred feel to it. Uh, Jesus obviously has won the colt's trust as well, which shows his mastery over over this beast, uh, his relationship with the beast. That the colt allows him to ride it, even though it's never been ridden. And the point is that Jesus is not entering Jerusalem like any other pilgrim who would have walked in. He's choosing to enter in this very symbolic way, in a way which speaks of his identity as the son of David, as the true king in preparation for the passion and suffering that he's about to undertake. And it's Passover time. And at this time, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, would be coming up to Jerusalem from Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast, which is where Pilate had his main residence and didn't really want to be in Jerusalem, so he actually lived out here on the coast. And so he would come in at Passover time every year Because Passover time was the time when rebellion was most likely to happen. When there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem celebrating their victory over Pharaoh in the Passover meal. This is a time for the governor, the Roman governor to be in Jerusalem with his soldiers to keep the peace. And here we have Pilate riding in on a, on a war horse to Jerusalem. Uh, so Jesus may have been doing a bit of street theatre here, a bit of a parody. We have Caesar's representative, Pilate, coming in from one direction on a war horse and Jesus, God's representative, coming in from another direction, fulfilling Zechariah riding on a young donkey, not on a warrior horse as a sign of the gentle redemption he's about to bring to Israel and the whole world. And the crowds respond in a way that's appropriate to what Jesus is doing. They spread their robes on the road and they cut branches and put them on the road and wave them in the air. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. This is honouring him. They're recognising that Jesus is this kingly figure and you don't spread cloaks on the road especially this dusty Middle Eastern context, for your family members or for even a respected member of your family. No, you do it for royalty. And you don't cut branches from trees and wave them around in the streets just because you feel elated. No, you do it to welcome in the king. And those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. And it's how pilgrims greeted each other. Hosanna. And they were quoting Psalm 118, which is one of the pilgrim psalms at Passover time. So this is what pilgrims would normally be shouting out at Passover time. So we have to be careful not to assume that the crowd's Um, understood everything about Jesus here. But they clearly understood something. They're laying down their cloaks before him, waving branches. And this echoes things that happened in Israel's history in the time of the Maccabees, when the temple was cleansed by the brave Jewish revolutionaries. In 1 and 2 Maccabees, Jewish writings, we get a similar scene of people coming into Jerusalem 200 years before this, Waving palm branches and cheering that this is now when the kingdom of God will come in. And then it didn't work out. The Hasmonean dynasty was terrible. The, um, the Herods who are now ruling, Herod the Great and his sons, they're terrible. It hasn't worked out. This is 200 years history before Jesus. And so people are thinking maybe this time, Maybe Jesus is the king that we've always been looking for. Maybe now is the day of God coming back to his temple and his kingdom coming. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings salvation to the people of Israel. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. But whatever the... Crowds understood. It's clear what Mark wants us to understand. Jesus is indeed the son of David. This is indeed the coming kingdom of God. This is indeed God coming back to his temple. The glory of God returning to the people of Israel. And then lastly, verse 11 is a very understated verse. We have this triumphal entry. We have this celebratory moment. We have these hosannas. We have cloaks being put on the road before him. And it says Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an understated moment. What an anticlimax. He goes into the temple and he just looks around and then goes back out to Bethany where he's lodging with the twelve. Now, the Greek word translated here, he looked around, is found seven times in the New Testament, six times in the Gospel of Mark. And nearly always it means judging, evaluating and discerning. Jesus is not just gazing around at what's happening in the temple. He's judging the temple. It's like Jeremiah 7, where God looks around and evaluates the temple and then declares judgment on it. And that's exactly what Jesus will do the following day. And he goes back to Bethany where he's hanging out. As I said, there's thousands, there's hundreds of thousands of visitors in Jerusalem at this time. So many pilgrims stayed in outlying villages and this is what Jesus is doing. So just to close, a quick reflection. These palm branches, they're waving as Jesus comes in. What's that about? Obviously, it's celebratory, but more than that, it evokes some of the prophecies about the return of the presence of God. Psalm 96 says, Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to rule the earth. Isaiah 55 says the mountains and the hills will burst into songs before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. If you put uh, seeds in a pot of soil and put it in darkness away from the sun, the seeds just kind of sleep. They can't erupt in all their potentiality. But if you bring that pot of soil with those seeds out into the presence of the sun, the whole thing explodes in potentiality. And what the scriptures are saying is everything in this world, even plants, even trees, even palm branches, even people are sleeping. They're just shadows of what they will be when God comes in his glory. When the creator comes and when the presence of God Brought by the Son of David, covers this world. The trees and the hills are going to clap and dance for joy. They will come alive. And if the trees and the hills will clap and dance for joy, what will we be in the presence of God as He comes? What will we be like? My goodness. C.S. Lewis at one point says, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. That is why the older stories, we, we have peopled the earth, the air and the water with nymphs and elves. That is why our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe that we feel cut off from is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. For if we take the scriptures seriously, God will one day give us the morning star and the trees in the hills will sing for joy with us. And so the ancient myths and poetry, so false as history, may be the truth as prophecy, says C.S. Lewis. The Messiah is going to bring this. The son of David is going to bring the glory of God back to the the people of God. He's going to be the temple himself. And everything will come alive. And the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And what is happening here as he comes into Jerusalem is simply a glimpse of that great day that is still to come finally, when Jesus will return in all his glory and we will be raised and the earth will be healed and all things will come to peace. That is what we're seeing, symbolised here with the waving of the palm branches. Amen.